one, two. Here's two. the bevy. Two. Yeah, one, two. Welcome to the John Lennon Hour with Jude Sutherland Kessler, author of the John Lennon series, Volume 1, Should Have Been There, Volume 2, Shivering Inside, and Volume 3, She Loves You. Purchase your copy of the John Lennon series at johnlennonseries.com. Welcome, Beatles fans. This is the John Lennon Hour. Tower clock strikes in the cold night air And it's onward to Liddy Pool for me Home to Liddy again Hello everyone and welcome to the show. We're dedicating the program tonight to a member of the Beatles family who constantly, constantly wore a smile, someone who never failed to bring one to my lips, the late, great, Dennis Ferrante. Now, Dennis, as most of you know, was John's sound engineer at the record plant, but more importantly, he was John's close friend, and I can tell you why. Dennis was genuine. You know, John never suffered a fool, especially a pretentious one, and Dennis was anything but that. (laughs) Dennis Ferrante didn't have one pretentious bone in his body. He was completely and utterly honest. And one of the things that he was really honest about was his love of life, facing one heart surgery after another, after another, after another, and surviving with only 20% of his heart muscle in working condition. Dennis honestly (laughs) squeezed more out of each day than most people do out of each week. He loved to play guitar. Gary and Eva can tell you that. Shannon can tell you that. He loved to get up and sing. He loved to restore grainy old songs to health, as he did for Duke Ellington's masterpieces, for which he won a Grammy. Loved to tell a good story. I can attest to that. He absolutely loved to light up a room. Dennis was joyous. He was fun. He was a gentle soul who loved his friends, and he didn't mind telling them so. The last time I had him on the show, right at the end of the show, you can hear it if you listen, I said, Dennis, I have to tell you something. You're my favorite guest on the John Lennon Hour. He started laughing and said, I know, it's obvious. (laughs) And it was. I really thought he hung the moon. On the 8th of December, 1980, John invited Dennis for dinner. But Dennis was swamped with work in the studio, and he had to decline. So he missed that dinner. But tonight, I know that John and Dennis are having a more important meal together, and they're talking and laughing, and they're picking up right where they left off. And I'm willing to bet, if you're allowed to bet on heavenly things, that the angels, even the really, really important serious ones, are smiling this evening. Here on earth, we miss you, Dennis. There aren't many like you. But you taught us to make the most of each day, and so we shall. We'll shine on, and so will you. So in honor of Dennis tonight, I had an idea, which I posted on Facebook. I told everybody, let's do something fun tonight. Let's do something Dennis would approve of. Let's wear our pajamas and have a pajama party tonight. So if you're in your pajamas, take a picture, nothing risque. 
send it to me on Facebook, and everyone who does that will be entered into a drawing for a copy of Jim Birkenstadt's book, The Beetle Who Vanished. It's a great book, and I'll do a drawing at the end of the show. Now, tonight my guest is someone who also is joyous and happy and always wearing a smile and loves to laugh. In fact, he ends every email with the words, keep laughing. He's an entertainment journalist. He is an award-winning humor columnist, but that's not all. He's here on the show because he's a pop culture historian. Back in 1966, he witnessed the mad, crazy excitement of Beatlemania when his wonderful parents took him to see the Fab Four during their final tour. And the memories of that evening inspired him to write his best-selling book, The Beatles in Cleveland. And it was such a success that a few years later, he decided to write what really to me is kind of the opposite book, and we'll talk about that in a minute, The Beatles at Shea Stadium, and he had another winner. I read both of these books cover to cover over the last week and a half or so. They are great, and I can't wait to share the insider info in these books with you guys. So in your PJs, help me welcome to the show Beatles historian and author and my buddy, Dave and let's bring him on the line. Dave, are you there? Well, hi, Jude. Are you there? I'm here. I'm here. Oh, can you hear me? Good. I can All now. Right. How are you? Well, I'm not wearing my pajamas, but I'm wearing a smile. Oh, well, we knew that. You always are. <laughs> I had to throw that in. I was listening to you. <laughs> How, what, where are you calling from? I'm in Chicago. Oh, Lovely. Yes. That is that's so, great. And what's the weather like up there tonight? Oh, let me see. It was a gray sky. It wasn't as hot as yesterday. I think we hit ninety yesterday. It was only in the seventies today, so I got to take a long walk and uh it's very nice. We're getting into summer, so this is great. Well good. Well I really appreciate you being on the show and you know, I may be way off base, but it's almost like you set out to write the two most diverse and 180 out concerts ever because Cleveland was a near disaster for the Beatles and Shea was the quintessential concert, you know, meaning Beatles success. Is that why you picked these two topics to show the spectrum of what a Beatles concert could really be? You know, I never looked at it that way before, but uh, now I can. Okay, I'll say that from <laughs> now on. <laughs> it, it really did kind of turn out that way. But uh, no, that yeah. wasn't the plan going into it. That, that wasn't the plan. Uh, matter of fact, um, I didn't plan on writing any Beatles books when I started out. I, that Beatles in Cleveland really started out for myself. Um, you mentioned a little bit about me, but uh, I was, uh, you know, I've had some experiences working in the entertainment industry. And uh, I, returned, I lived in New York for a while, worked in Hollywood for a while, uh, returned up to Cleveland where I'm from and uh, you know, to raise a family and everything. And I was writing for a number of different newspapers in Ohio, and the entertainment columns got to preview and review concerts, and everyone from uh, you know Paul McCartney to uh, Garth Brooks and Britney Spears, um, the Everly Brothers, uh, the Monkees. Matter of fact, I have to tell you sometime about a private concert my wife and I had from the Monkees, just the two of us. Wow. Um, but so I was doing a lot of this writing, and like you, as an author, you know we have to write. If we're not writing, yep. we're bored. And so right. uh, I remember one night I sat down at my computer and I. Really, I reviewed like four concerts in a row, and it was the night sitting there. I had nothing to, to review. So I thought, you know, I'm going to write down my memories of that Beatles Cleveland concert that I saw, so I don't forget it. Um, and the great thing about that, I mean, I've always 
you know, I've always talked about this, seeing the Beatles in uh, 1966. And I remember going to school uh, that year. We started back to school in September, and we had a social studies teacher, and he went around the room, and this was great. He had every, every student, all of us got to stand up and say, what's the best thing, you know, what's the coolest thing we did that summer? I don't think he used the word cool. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I remember sitting in the back of the room, because, you know, I was hiding out with my friends <laughs> in the back of the room. And I remember going around, everybody standing up saying what they did, and I'm waiting, did anyone else see the Beatles? Did anyone do this? But it got to be my turn, and I stood up, and they said, what's the great thing you did this summer? And I said, I saw the Beatles. At Cleveland Stadium. And oh. everybody turned around and looked at me. You know, I could still picture it. I'll turn around like, wow, what was that like? And, and, and I got to stand there and explain it. You know, I said it was a riot. I mean, the kids rushed on the field. The Beatles had to be pulled off the stage. And, and it was just pandemonium. You know, it was like a hard day's night. And wow. um, it, it's something I've been able to talk about, you know, my whole life. I, mean, I remember going to college with my frat brothers, you know, we're in the house and Everybody's, you know, you get those conversations. Hey, what's the best concert you've ever seen? And a lot of these guys at that time had Jimi Hendrix and the Doors and, you know, great acts. I'm not yeah. knocking them all, but I, but yeah. I trumped them all. I, I did better. I saw the Beatles. And they were like, oh, whoa, right. the Beatles? Because we were really too young to probably have seen them. You know, my parents had to take me. And they yeah. were like, what was that like? So I told the whole story. And um, even I remember when I was working in New York City in 1989 when the Rolling Stones toured, do wheels tour, they were playing Shea Stadium. And all the comics I was working with, were, uh, everybody was going. And, of course, we got this conversation. Hey, what's the best concert you've ever seen? Is it the Rolling Stones this year or what? And I said, well, I saw the Beatles, and there was the same reaction. Whoa, what was that like? So, <laughs> you know, so here I am back in Ohio many years later writing these entertainment columns. And I thought, I'll write down my memories of what it was like to see the Beatles. I'll write a review. So I did it yeah. one night. I posted it on my website, which is my other, my day job. You know, I'm a comedy coach, so I have a comedy website. So right. I, I posted it on, on that, and um, I went to bed. And I'm seriously, the next morning, the next morning I got up, I checked my email, I had an email from someone that said, you saw the Beatles, can you, can you tell us more? I was like, yeah, you know, yeah, I got no life. Okay, sure. Let me uh, <laughs> sit down and type out, you know, here's, here's the opening act, here's the weather, here's what was going on in the stands, all this stuff. And uh, I started getting people who, fans who were at that concert, and also the one in Cleveland in 1964, they started sending me their memories. And I started yeah. collecting all this, and I started a website, BeatlesInCleveland.com, and I was posting all this on there. And after, I, after a while, I realized, you know, I, I had a few books published before this. I thought, you know, I think I have a book here. So, really? And I hope this story's not getting too long. <laughs> I tend, oh, I tend to it. talk a lot, dude. <laughs> I like it. But uh, I... There was a very famous rock journalist in the Cleveland area, uh, Jane Scott. I don't know if you've heard of her or not. Uh, very legendary in northern Ohio. And she's, she was very uh, instrumental in getting the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. And she worked for the big paper in Cleveland, the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And the first concert she ever reviewed was the Beatles at Public Hall in 1964. And she continued working until she was in her 80s, you know, covered everything. And I would know yeah. her from going to these concerts when I was reviewing them. And we'd kind of stand there together to meet the artists backstage. And we got to talking. So I kind of knew her. So I called her up. And I said, Jane, I think um, I have like a book going on here. And, but I know you knew the Beatles. She, she got in their hotel suite in 1966 and interviewed right. them and reviewed their show. She knew them. And Paul McCartney knew her on a first name basis when they toured with Wings and all this stuff. And so mm -hmm. she invited me to come over to talk about it. And we sat there. Oh, I'd say about three hours. I had a tape recorder going, 
and she told me all about everything she knew about the Beatles in Cleveland, meeting them, what they were like, what they wore, what they, what the cigarettes they smoked, all this kind of stuff. And yeah. uh, when I finished, I said, Jane, this is great. I, just, I think I have a book. She goes, oh, that's nothing. You ought to talk to Norman Wayne. He's the promoter yeah. of the show. You ought to talk to him. He's got great information. I said, well, well, great. How do I get a hold of Norman Wayne? She goes, here's his phone number. Call him. Oh, my so gosh. <clears throat> and basically, he told me the great story that's in the book. And I said, wow, Norman, this is, I'm going to have a great book. He goes, oh, that's nothing. You ought to talk to, to Big Jack Armstrong. He was the MC on stage when all this was coming down. I said, well, great. How do I get a hold of Big Jack? He goes, here's his phone number. Call him. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> So I guess what I'm trying to say is that book pretty much wrote itself. Uh, I, mean, I just it got did. one, I one mean... lead. Yeah, one lead led to another. And uh, I, I really put that one together for myself. Cause I it was great. Well, now, Cleveland. Norman Wayne is one of the people that really interested me because, I, you know, we if you go back to that 64 concert, which really yeah. almost turned tragic, he says yeah. it was the first big concert in the area and the police weren't adept at crowd control. Is that what happened? Is that the only reason that things went awry that night? Yeah, I would say so, because you got to remember back in, this was September 15th, 1964, you know, when the Beatles, there was never anything like that before. You know, I mean, of course there was Elvis, and, um, you know, my mom tells me stories about when she would see Frank Sinatra when she was a teenager, and they'd all be yeah. screaming. But, but there, there was nothing on this scale, you know, this, this Beatlemania, you know, pandemonium, right. and Elvis had been gone for a while, you know, he went into the army and he didn't tour, and a lot of those original rock and rollers, Buddy Holly and you know Little Richard, they, they really weren't around. So there, there wasn't anything like this going on. So when mm-hmm, the Beatles mm-hmm. toured in 1964, uh, nobody really knew what to expect. You know, it would be as right. crazy as it was. So especially with the shows in the show in Cleveland, a public hall that was stopped by the police and everything. Um, Basically, what happened was the police, these were off-duty cops, okay? They were picking up some extra money, basically oh. babysitting duty, okay? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> these were all the, the teeny boppers, you know, they're all there. And, you know, also in those days, in 64, again, very different than it is today, parents would, they had no interest. There was a generation gap. Parents had no interest in seeing the Beatles. That was long hair, rock and roll music kind of stuff. Right, so right. Any, any, any city they would go to, I guess, the parents, you know, they could drop the kids off. They would drop mm-hmm. the kids off for the concert. Then the parents would go out to the movies or have dinner, go see a show. So there was really not a lot of parental guidance in these places. You got yeah. a lot of, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old boys and girls, you know, there. And sure. basically what happened in Cleveland when the Beatles came on stage, the police could not understand why these four long-haired guys from England would get more security than, say, JFK got when he was there the summer right. before. So uh-huh. according to all the research and the witnesses and everybody that was there, uh, when the Beatles came on stage, the police turned around and watched the show. They wanted to see oh. what the big deal was. And behind them, they didn't see all these kids climbing over the chairs, running down the aisles. Uh, again, Jane Scott, who reviewed the concert, told me that the girls up on the balcony had sheets tied together. They were coming down the sheets on the balcony. <laughs> It was like a siege kind of thing. And, and by the time the police realized what was going on, it was too late. They were, like, almost overpowered. And it was yes. chaos. And they, they kind of jumped the gun a little bit, but they stopped the show. The police chief and the fire chief, uh, Carl C. Bear, ran up on stage and uh, pushed John and George off their microphone while they were playing uh, All My Lovin'. 
push yeah. them away from the mic and, and stop the show. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. one of the stories you tell about that, because I want you to fit this into what you're getting ready to tell, is this competition that's going on between WHK and WKY because they figure into that story. And guys I, that, who are listening out there, I know you want to call in and I know you want to ask questions of Dave. So the phone number is 646-668-2641. And as soon as he tells his story, we're going to let you jump in and ask him your questions. But you got to hear this story because it is so, so funny. So fire away, Dave. Tell him the story. Yeah, this was a great story. And again, I've learned, this is stuff you learned from interviewing the people that were there that actually did this. But uh, Norman Wayne, who's, again, very well-known in Cleveland, he was a DJ back in the 50s, Big Chief Norman, and they had two AM stations in Cleveland. KYW was the big one. They were number one. They were the powerhouse. And a smaller one was WHK. And Uh uh, at this time, in 64, Norman Wayne, he had two partners, Bob Weiss and Joe Zingale, if I pronounced that correctly. Uh, They were the advertising guys. They were the ones that go out to get the sponsors for the station. And it was tough for them because they weren't number one. So they got this idea that if they could bring the Beatles into Cleveland, that would create a buzz, meaning they could sell more advertising, get more advertisers, make more money. So they had to get the Beatles yeah. in Cleveland. So they, <clears throat> excuse me, they approached the uh, the Beatles booking agency, GAC in New York, about bringing in the Beatles, and they said, no, we don't want to work with you guys. You're too small. We want KYW. They're the big one. And then they also <laughs> went to public call in Cleveland and said, we'd love to bring the Beatles. And they said, no, not you guys. You're not the number one station. We want KYW. So they got this brilliant idea. One of them flew to New York, and the other two stayed in Cleveland, and they started sending fake telegrams to each other, saying they would send a telegram from New York to Cleveland saying, we got the Beatles. We've signed the Beatles for September 15th. And then the guys in Cleveland would send a telegram to New York saying, we have public hall. We rented it for September 15th. You know? And so they would show these fake telegrams to the Beatles people. Say, we got the hall. You know, we got the, you know, so anyway, they wound up getting the concert. So that KYW was not too happy about this. <laughs> they got sure. scooped. Yeah. So it was a big promotion for WHK. And if you look at the pictures of the 1964 concert in Cleveland on the back of the big curtain behind the Beatles, WHK presents the Beatles. Yeah. So, uh, so they stole the concert from KYW. So what happened was when everything went out of control at public hall, yeah. the uh, the two DJs who had the number one show in Cleveland at that time, Speck Howard and Harry Martin, were the number one morning show. They had to buy tickets to get in. <laughs> they didn't know they were at the wrong thing. So they, uh-huh. I talked to Harry Martin, his whole interviews in the book. They had to buy tickets to get in. Well, by the time they showed up and got into the hall, that's when everything was breaking loose. Everything was wild. The, kid, the police were already on stage stopping the show. So they pushed right. their way up to the stage. And they called out to the police chief who knew them. They were the number one guys. Said, you know, we're Martin and Howard. We can calm this crowd down. If we can get the kids to calm down, will you let the show go on? Will you let the show go on? And these cops had no, they couldn't control the kids. They were like, yeah, finally, okay, yes, we'll do that. We'll let you guys give it a shot. If you can calm down the kids, we'll let the show continue. So they said, fine. But one stipulation, if we do this for you, you cannot let the WHK DJs back on stage. <laughs> So they made the it's deal. Hilarious. Yes. Oh my gosh. So Martin and Howard from the rival station went up on stage. They told the kids the show is going to be canceled unless you get back to your seats by the count of three. And they yelled out one. And you can hear the kids running all the feet. Two kids are running. Three. It was like musical chairs. Everybody hit a chair, they told me. And then they went on to promote their show. 
on the rival station. Listen to us, uh, Martin and Howard, in the morning. We're going to play four Beatles songs in a row. And um, you never saw another DJ from WHK on the stage that night. They wore red jerseys or whatever they had on, jackets. You never saw another one that night afterwards. And, um, yeah, and Harry Martin also told me in the interview, years later he was working in San Diego, and Paul McCartney was out there something. It was an interview. And somebody asked him about the Cleveland show. And he remembered yeah. it and said he knew they were, they were leaving. He said they were walking out the back door. They'd been told the show had been canceled when someone stopped them and said, no, you're back on. And he yeah. said he had no idea what happened. And uh, so Harry Martin said, if Sir Paul ever reads my book, he'll know what happened. They saved the show for him. So, yeah, that's a great story. That is just, I mean, I was, I'm was i sitting in bed at like 3 in the morning reading this and laughing and almost waking my husband up because I am rolling. <laughs> and the way you tell it is so great, and it just, it, that's one of my favorite stories. So, all right, listeners, 646-668-2641. Call in with your questions. We'll be glad to answer them. And while we're waiting for someone to call, tell us about this Mayor Ralph, is it Locker? Is that how you say it? L O C H E R. He bans all but, rock and roll concerts. What, what was up with yeah, that? Yeah, Mayor Ralph Locker. Ralph Locker was Loker. the mayor of Cleveland at the time. And um, yeah, as a result of what happened at uh, the Beatles concert in September 1964, uh, he banned all rock and roll shows from the city of Cleveland, which is pretty oh. funny now when you think back at it because they got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But yeah, uh, really? they, all, all shows were banned. And his reason was, uh, as he told Jane Scott, the journalist, uh, little girls should not behave that way in public. Oh, boy. So they, they banned all rock and roll shows. And the one they did after that, there was one that had to do about a month or two later because the contract was already signed, everything was done. Uh, they were bringing in the Rolling Stones to the uh-huh. same venue, public hall. And I talked to people who were at that show, and you know, with the screaming headlines, the Beatles riot in public hall, how horrible it was. Well, there was no way parents were going to drop their little kids off when you got Mick sure. Jagger and Brian Jones and Keith Richards. They were. So the, the ones who were at that show, they said it was only maybe a third filled, maybe a quarter filled. It was a ton wow. of empty seats because nobody would go see the Rolling Stones then after what happened with the Beatles. Wow. And um, that was the end of all the rock and roll shows in Cleveland until 1966 when they brought the Beatles back. That's just crazy. Now, do you remember, I mean, how did you and your friends react to that? You know what? Honestly, I don't think I was really aware of it. I was too young. I mean, I, I was about, you know, maybe 10, 11 years old at the time. I don't remember. But, yeah. uh, you know, it, the, going to see an act like that in person, I mean, you saw them on television. I mean, I couldn't believe you could actually go see them in person, you know, that kind of thing. Right, um, right. But, yeah, it didn't really affect me because I was too young. My parents wouldn't have let me go at that time anyway. So yeah. for, us in the, for us seeing the Beatles, you know, it was watching A Hard Day's Night. It was watching Help and listening listening to the albums or watching Shindig or the Ed Sullivan show. That's where you saw the Beatles. So, sure. yeah, it, it was kind of a revelation to me later on that those shows had been banned. I, I didn't know that they weren't allowed yeah. to come back in 65. Yeah, well, we do have someone waiting to talk to you on the line, so if you don't mind, we'll go right to the phones. Here we go. I was just going to say, I hope it's not anyone I owe money. <laughs> we'll see. Hello, caller in the 618 area code. Welcome to the John Lennon Hour. Well, hi, Jude. This is Sarah Schmidt calling. Hi, Sarah. I know you. And hi, Dave. It's nice to talk to you. Good talking to you. Um, Great to have you here. Looks like you've been having a wonderful tour, Sarah. Yeah, I was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I was in Cleveland at 3 o'clock this morning leaving. 
that oh my is God. wild. And here we are talking about Cleveland. I know. It's perfect because I've been in that frame <laughs> well, of mind. Uh, that is great. We're so glad you called in. And how is your book going? Well, it's really good. And I'm using Dave's book about Cleveland. It's been a wonderful reference. And I really, really appreciate all the work he's done. Well, thank you. I'm writing a book about the Beatles' St. Louis concert in 1966. So, uh, You know what? I know that. I, I've seen that online or something. You've got some stuff out there. I know that. Oh, wow. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. We're good. Well, we can't um, so wait. Are you going to have it finished, Sarah? Um, I'm still looking at this time next year. Good deal. And time well, for the 50th anniversary. All right. We have you a spot saved on the radio show whenever you're ready. Yeah, I work on it all the time. Okay, so girl. Well, there. fire away with your question. You know all about these concerts. I know you have a great question for Dave. Well, I'm um, reading in my 1966 concert information. Do you think part of why the Beatles decided to quit touring had to do with all the rushing of the stage that happened in Cleveland in '66? Yes. Um, I think that's in. Boy, I wish I could remember which book that's in now, uh, Shea Stadium or the Beatles' Shea Stadium. But yeah, in talking to everyone who was with them, working with them, of course, the big thing that everyone says: well, the Beatles stopped touring because they couldn't play the music they were playing that time. They couldn't reproduce that sound on stage, like Yellow Submarine and Tomorrow Never Knows, and they're getting a Sergeant Pepper. Yeah, that's partially true. It is, but the main reason I found out was they were scared. They yeah. were very much scared. Uh, I keep talking about the difference between the concerts when the Beatles toured and the way things are now. If you go see a performer today, you go see Justin Timberlake or uh, One Direction or whoever's out there, you know, you see these big strong-arm security guards all in front of the stage, and they got barricades all over and everything. Uh, it wasn't that way with the Beatles. So the fans could get to them. <clears throat> yeah. me. Um, you know, they didn't know, and especially the death threats they had in 66 with John Lennon's uh, comments about Christianity and religion. And, um, I have a videotape I show. Uh, maybe you've seen it, or when I when I do the Beatles festivals, Abbey Road on the River and stuff. But uh, when they run off stage in Cleveland in 1966, those fans are right in their face. And uh, I do have a a video that I slow down. I show it frame by frame, and it looks like Paul McCartney is getting punched in the face. I mean, his head snaps wow. back, and like, wow, what happened there? They didn't have that protection. And, you know, even in, I think it was Memphis, when someone set off a firecracker on stage and they all looked at John to see if he'd gotten shot, you know. And, and yeah, it, from talking to the people with them, the main thing was their safety. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't protect them. So that was a big deal, fear. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of the things I've been reading as well, and I just kind of wanted to see your point of view too. So I'm glad it's about the same as what yeah, I've well, read. You know, being a witness, like I said, I was at that 1966 concert in Cleveland when the fans rushed up on the stage. I mean, they were up there. They, a girl jumped up on Ringo's drum platform with the drumstick right out of his hand. I mean, Paul's wow. jacket was ripped up in the back. I mean, they were right in their faces <laughs> grabbing them. And, you know, there were just some really off-duty cops. A lot of them were older and overweight, to be quite honest. And they were just picking up some extra money. And how are they going to fight off these kids? You know, there were thousands of them on the field you know, rushing up onto the stage. So it was wow. very scary. I, I could but you weren't one of them rushing up there, right? <laughs> no, I was. I had box seats. I paid, hey, big bucks at that time. My parents got $5.50 tickets, right? So we sat in box seats in the upper deck. So I was looking down on this as it happened below me. 
And, uh, you know, to be quite honest, I didn't feel like running down the stairs to run up there because I didn't want to miss anything. I was there to see the Beatles. I wasn't there to see a bunch of fans, you know. (laughs) So I really sat there. My mouth was probably hanging right wide open going, oh, my God, look at this. uh, (laughs) But, yeah, talking to the ones who were up there, the ones who were on stage with them, uh, especially Big Jack Armstrong, they're very surprised someone didn't get hurt. You know, it was only a few years, what, six, seven years later, something when the Who uh, had those fans killed in Cincinnati that were trampled to death. Um, he told me the story in the book, you know, that that stage the Beatles were on was about neck high. And when the fans were all, you know, 3,000 fans are pushing against that, and the ones who were in the front row, they were being pushed against the stage. He said they were turning blue to their faces. Uh, they were like, help me, help me. And that's why they were trying to push everyone back. So it was a very, uh, you know, you look back on it, what a scary, dangerous situation. You know, and that's, yeah, what, that's yeah. what was happening with them. Yeah. Well, that's a so good observation. Are you seeing that same kind of thing, Sarah, with with what you're doing? Well, by the time the Beatles got to St. Louis, the fans had calmed down some. Yeah, thank goodness. That That's one of the things that came out, a lot of the people I've interviewed, is that the fans were very polite and nobody tried to rush the stage or anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, the one yeah, thing I, I heard that, that that's in my book, Jerry G., the DJ from uh, Cleveland that uh, traveled with them in 65 and 66, and I said, what's the difference between Cleveland? Because the two concerts in Cleveland, I found, were very different than another city. Yeah. And I would say, right. hey, maybe, it the, maybe it was the water out of Lake Erie we were drinking. I don't know. But uh, he said the difference was in the other cities, the fans all wanted to see the Beatles. In Cleveland, they all wanted to touch one. And he said that wow. was the big difference. Mm. So, yeah, those, those two Cleveland concerts were just crazy. Yeah, they were. Well, Sarah, you just keep working right away because we want to hear all about St. Louis and what happened and talk about it just like we're talking about this. Well, I'll be ready to tell you all about it. Find okay, some great information. Mom, we said hi. I will. Right, we'll I'll let her know. very soon, my friend. Okay, thank yes, you for calling. see you in August. Bye. Right, see you then. Okay. Well, we have see another ya. caller on the line, Dave. Are you ready for one more? I'm ready. Let's go. All right. Hey, caller from the 630 area code, welcome to the John Lennon Hour. Well, hello, this is a, a sort of neighbor of Dave's. This is Kid oh, O'Toole. Cool. I know Kid O'Toole right away. How are you? Part, part, of, part of Kitten Caboodle, right? The Kitten Caboodle, that that's right. right. That's right. She's the better I'm up on you guys. I know Caboodle. what you're doing. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. She, she's what are you the better calling half. What why don't you just walk over here and talk to me? You're calling on the phone. We're just yeah, like, exactly. I should just go over. Yep. I'm telling you, we got to meet at Starbucks at some point. <laughs> I walked by there today. I'm telling you, I walked by today. Oh, my gosh. How funny. So I'm, I'm sorry, Jude. We're totally <laughs> I love it. I'm just wishing I were in the same neighborhood. I'm thinking, how can I make that move? <laughs> That's right. Now, come on. Come on. you got Chicago in the house tonight. That's right. Every time you. I walk by there, I look in the window. You know, I'm always looking for you. I know, I know. We've got to meet at at some point. We really have to. (laughs) (laughs) My post office and the bank are right there, and that's my daily walk. Excellent. (laughs) And Kit is busy. She's busy working on a book, too, and we hope that she has it done by the Chicago Fest. The songs we were singing, all of her essays, collected essays about the Beatles and their music. So how's it going, Kit? It is coming along. I am uh, just sort of gathering all the material. It's kind of a case, and I'm, I'm sure both of you can relate to this, where you're just like, wow, I've, I've accumulated a lot of stuff <laughs> over <Yeah>. the years. 
and I've got to like organize it, you know, to make it uh, make it a bit more uh, presentable. But yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. It's my first Beatles book, so I'm 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 going to be thrilled and, and honored to join join your ranks of uh, of Beatles authors at last. Well, I'm well, we are looking. Oh, you know, we're looking yeah, forward to that forward too. To. Well. Are you interested in the Cleveland concert or Shea Stadium? Well, I'll tell you. I, you know, I've read uh, the Shea Stadium um, uh, concert book, and uh, and I swear to God, Dave is not paying me to say this. It is a fantastic book. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> it is. It, it is. And and one of the things I love about it is that you know, uh, uh, Dave, you really take us. I mean, you're backstage. You're on stage. You're you're in the audience. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just a, a really well-rounded picture um, of Shay. And so my question uh, is, you know, were there any stories that particularly surprised you and, and were completely new to you as you were researching the book? Well, the one story I – there's a number of them, of course. I mean, everyone, every, like, every day was like, wow, I didn't know that, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. The one story I thought was really interesting, I was talking to uh, – Peter Bennett, who is the big record promoter, you know, mm-hmm. very, very famous, and no longer with us anymore, but uh, I was fortunate to interview him before he passed away. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ron Schneider, who is, uh, uh, was the Rolling Stones business manager, he's also later produced the movie Gimme Shelter. Um, he was, uh-huh. They went backstage at Shea Stadium with uh, Mick and Keith from the Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize they had been backstage. And also Ron's uncle, who, is, who was Alan Klein. Oh. Alan Klein was backstage with Brian Epstein at Shea wow. Stadium with the Beatles. <laughs> These guys are all there. And, wow. And, uh, you know, I have, I have that one picture in the book with, uh, you see, George Harrison and John and uh, Mick Jagger and Bobby Vinton and uh, Alan Klein and Peter Bennett. Nice. They're all in the same picture. Oh, yeah. So that kind of, that that was surprising to hear. Wow. Boy, yeah, I mean, I, I remember reading that section, and, and yeah, I, I certainly had no idea. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, you uh, think about that, what was going to come down later in a few years with Apple Records and Alan Klein and everything, you just, my gosh, there they all were in 65. In that, is, that is weird. That stage together. Mm-hmm. That is yeah, really you have, weird. You have Bobby Vinton, the past, the Beatles, yes. the present, Alan Klein, the future. They're all there in one moment. Yes. Amazing. And they're all that that picture in there, you know, was taken by George Orsino, who also is no longer with us, but he had some great pictures and, and you know, he wanted to use them to cover the book was taken by George. Um but yeah, that's a picture they were gathering right before they ran out to the dugout, before they were running on stage, and they were all piled up there and they were waiting for yeah. Ringo. because uh, mm-hmm. they wanted to go out together and Ringo was trailing behind. So that's why uh-huh. they were all kind of standing there waiting for Ringo to show up. Then they would run out onto the field. Wow. Well, I agree with with Kit. It's fascinating, and I love the format. You you know you cover the songs. You take us through every step of the concert as they're plugging into their amplifiers and adjusting their coats. And I mean, you're you're there. You're on stage, and I agree. It is really it's riveting. Is what it is. It's riveting. It sure is. Thank you. But, but you know, unlike you guys, unlike both of you, we're fans. So mm-hmm. yeah. when, when we write, we're writing for the fans. How would what would we want to know? What what did you yeah. know, when I wrote it? What did I want to know? How what's the excitement I wanted to feel? And uh, right. yeah, I, I tried to get right up there with them. Yeah, I mean so. the detail is just amazing. I mean, down to you know what? Not only I mean we all know what they wore, of course. I mean, yeah. 
the the footage, but I mean, you really go into like you know how hot those jackets were and and oh, yeah, I mean it was brutal. It just you know those great details that make you feel like you're you're right there. Yeah, well, and you know, thank you very much because the Shea Stadium will be in Volume Four of the John Lennon series, and I will have yeah. five thousand footnotes that say Dave Clinton, <laughs> the Beatles at. <laughs> So you just made Jude's life easier, Dave. That's what. <laughs> well, I'm glad you, my mission in life is to make our lives easier. <laughs> oh, well, geez. next week, Kit, we will be ta- we'll have our kitten caboodle regular show, and then we're going to have the kitten caboodle after party and let people call in and give their opinions, disagree and agree with us, and we're going to be talking about why did the Beatles fail the Decca audition. Oh, so, I can't wait. See you next week, my friend. When you said after party, I was expecting that I'd meet uh, Kit and you down here at our Starbucks where we we live, and I'd have a lampshade on my head, and we're talking about a party. Come on. I think think we need to do that. I think we need to do that. Absolutely. (laughs) I need a ticket to ride. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Well, thank you for calling, my friend. I appreciate it so much. Oh, enjoyed it. Dave, great talking to you as always. I'll I'll see you at Starbucks soon. If I don't see you there, I'll see you at the Chicago Fest, right? Oh, right. Absolutely. I will be yeah. there. Very good. All right, Kit. See you next week. Okay, Thank Jude. You. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, so before we get another caller, there's one thing I can't wait to hear, and that is your countdown of the top ten reasons <laughs> that Shay was the Beatles' greatest concert. So we're going to go from number ten all the way up to number one. Go. Oh, my gosh. You know, uh, that's like giving me homework here. Okay, what's 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 going on? You know, this 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 will be in honor of David Letterman, by the way, because I always love the top ten list, and we all miss exactly. uh, the David Letterman show. Uh, yeah, I yeah. actually gave this some thought. Okay, so here we go. The top ten list of why uh, uh, Shea Stadium, right? Shea Stadium was the greatest concert of their career. Uh, number right. ten. Number ten. They were not just pop stars anymore. They were movie stars. This was a Ooh. big deal to see these guys live. I mean, not only a hard day's night, but help had just come out. Yeah. Help came out like maybe yeah. a week or so before. You were seeing them on the big screen. The Help soundtrack came out that Friday before. So, you know, it wasn't just you were watching a little pop group anymore. These were, this was the pinnacle. You know, I mean, this was the Beatles live. You see yeah. them on the big screen, and here they are in front of you. So that was a big deal. So that's my number 10. Okay? Right. Now, my number one. <clears throat> this is for my generation, maybe yours, baby boomers. Okay, we had always been told, you know, younger that, you know, the Beatles music was just noise. My parents were very supportive. My parents loved the Beatles, but I remember reading in the papers and hearing other parents talk. You know, they wouldn't let their kids get Beatles albums, and they wouldn't let them go to concerts because it was it was just rock and roll with noise. Their music was right. so much better. Frank Sinatra, Elvis, and I, I'm a big Elvis fan. I'm a big Sinatra fan. But you yeah. know, this was our music, and now here's Shea Stadium was so big. Elvis and Sinatra hadn't done that, you know. So yeah. here you are, boom, it put us on the map. <laughs> yeah. Okay? Really? We really were bigger now. The Beatles really were bigger. There was the proof. Yeah. Okay. Number eight, Shea Stadium changed everything as far as rock and roll and pop music goes. As Ken Mansfield says in my book, and Ken is, was the head of um, U.S. Apple Records. And right. by the Beatles to run U.S. But at the time, in 65, he worked for Capitol Records, which is the Beatles label. But he said in the book, mm-hmm. it proved that rock and roll, pop music, could be done in stadiums. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
that was big. That, Shea Stadium was the birth of Stadium Rock. Now, I could talk more right. about that because you know Elvis did some, but this was the one that really put it on the map, okay? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I'll make that number seven. Number seven. <laughs> it was the first Stadium <laughs> Rock concert of that size. Okay. Nothing had been that big in rock and roll before. Okay, now Elvis, again, I'm a huge Elvis fan. I saw, I was lucky, I saw Elvis in concert, too, before he got fat. Wow. And, uh, you know, but Elvis had done, I don't know, I think it was five or six stadium concerts, it's in the book, um, before he went into the Army. But the biggest one of those was at the Cotton Bowl in Texas, and he had 26,000 people there. Okay, that's a big deal. But the Beatles had to more than double that to fill Mm -hmm. Shea Stadium, and they did. 55,000 600 people. So that's number seven. Nothing right. in that size. That, that, that was it. That, that trumped everybody. Yeah. Uh, let me see. My number six. This demonstrated the power and the popularity of the Beatles for everyone. No doubt for anyone. And the one thing I, I thought about, because <clears throat> I get this, you know, when we go to our Beatles fest and everything, we meet to talk to people and everything. Uh, I get a lot of people younger to come up. Yeah. And they say, well, you know, Grand Funk Railroad. They broke the record. They broke the Beatles' record for selling out Shea Stadium. They did it in 72 hours. The Beatles can't say that. And I'm like, you know <laughs> what? You know what? When, when Grand Funk did that in the 70s, they had ticket brokers. Okay? Yeah. I think they might even had Ticketmaster at that time. So uh-huh. even though they didn't have the computers that we have today, it was still mechanized that they could run off these tickets and sell them right away. Um, the Beatles didn't have that. They didn't have right. that in 1965. Okay? So what it was, if you wanted to see the Beatles, you had to send in a self-addressed stamped envelope with your cash or maybe a check. And yeah. Sid Bernstein, the promoter, had to hire high school kids, the college kids, you know, to sit in his kitchen or wherever they sat yeah. and open each one of these envelopes and stuff the tickets in it, take the money out, stuff the tickets, and seal the envelopes and mail them back. And yeah. they yeah. did that for 55,600 seats. Oh my okay. God! And there, were other, and there were more ticket requests. They they could have sold more of that, more than that, but they didn't. So they still had to open those envelopes and return all that money. So yeah, it took a few yeah. weeks to do that. But if they'd had the um, the power to do that, like they do today, or when Grand Funk did it, the Beatles would have sold out in hours. Well, so of course, yeah. <laughs> so don't don't give me that Grand Funk Railroad nonsense. I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> don't give me your Grand Funk. <laughs> yeah, we don't, don't give me that it. Grand Funk. No, that doesn't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number five, number five, Shea Stadium sold out by word of mouth. There yeah. was no advertising. Um, Brian Epstein would not allow any advertising until Sid paid a deposit of $50,000, and Sid wow. didn't have the money. Wow. So they, they set up a concert in the late fall of 1964, and so Sid was like, well, okay, I'm not allowed to advertise, but can I talk about it? And Brian mm-hmm. said, well, I can't stop you from talking about it. So Sid went down to, I think, like Washington Square Park or something in Manhattan, and the kids knew who he was. You know, he brought the Beatles to yeah. Carnegie Hall. And they're like, Mr. Bernstein, what's going on next? He goes, well, the Beatles at Shea Stadium, August 15th. How do we get tickets? <laughs> and he set up a P.O. box. He said, here's the address. Oh, Send your money to this P.O. box. And he went down there a few weeks later, and there were just 10 big, huge sacks of mail that he had to drag oh, back to his God. office. And... Um, you know, eventually, you know, when he met Brian to finalize the deal in January of 65, Brian expected a $50,000 deposit, and Sid gave him $100,000. He paid in full. <laughs> and uh, the concert was sold out. Yeah. So it was all word of mouth. So 
even, I hate to say this to some of the Beatles collectors, because they've come up to me and they've shown me posters from, you know, the Beatles concert in 1965. Those were made up after the show. Yeah. Uh, even mm-hmm. the newspaper articles, because Sid was trying to sell other concerts. He had the Dave Clark Five, the Kinks, you know, the Animals. They were all coming in, but he got to use the name Beatles. So that would get people's right. attention to the, to the articles. So he was selling tickets to the other shows, so the Beatles were sold out. So wow. that was just sold out by word of mouth. Yeah. yeah. Number four. That's, a, that's crazy, really, when you think about it. that That's unbelievable. Oh, it really is. I mean, no advertising. No, there wasn't yeah. any. Wow. And just the kids, word, word was circulating through the kids and uh, sold out, Shea Stadium. Hmm. So, number four, <clears throat> the television special. Okay, that was a big deal. No, at that time, no rock concerts. There were no television specials for rock and roll concerts. I mean, Murphy Decay would have a number of different groups come on, New York Television, Clay Cole. Uh, or you want to see a big rock and roll act, you watch the Ed Sullivan Show, or you watch Shit yeah. or Hullabaloo. Nobody act. Elvis didn't have a TV special. I mean, Frank Sinatra did stuff with Bring Out Elvis, but this was just a Beatles concert with a TV special. Unheard of. And the cool yeah. thing about this concert, I talk about this in the book, it was shot like a major motion picture. It was filmed like a major motion picture. They had 35-millimeter sure cameras on the field. Uh, that's how they... Yeah. You know, that's how they filmed Cleopatra, Ben-Hur, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah, really. In, in, yeah. In, in contrast, you know, Monterey Pop Festival and the Woodstock movie were only done on 16 millimeter. The Beatles, uh-huh. I mean, that's high definition. That's big-time quality. So, really? Yeah, the TV special. So I have that for number yeah. four. Uh, number three. Oh, this is great. I love, this is like my favorite part. <clears throat> Even the Beatles had never experienced this. They, they hadn't. You know, you think about the Beatles. They conquered the world. They toured the world. They played all the things. They had never experienced this in their careers. They were only playing 12,000, 14,000-seat arenas before this. Now, yeah. in 64, they went to Australia, and there were 300,000 people watching them wave from their balcony, and Jimmy Nichols was with them, with Ringo. You know, they're waving right. from the balcony, and there were 300,000 people, but, you know, the concerts weren't that size. So if you watch the film of the Beatles coming running out of that dugout, look at their faces. You know, yeah. and, he, and and then I talked to the ones who were backstage with them. They said how nervous they were. Well, They've never sure. done this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have I have a story in there of George peeking out of the door behind the dugout and running back inside. And um, yeah, when they come out, when they walk on that field, whoa! So that's <laughs> you know so big that even the Beatles, it was really the pinnacle of their touring career because it was so fresh and brand new to them. And you can see the excitement in their faces and, and them on stage. Whereas later in '66, you don't see that same feeling. Yeah, they were just kind of going yeah, and the you, you think about how excited they were to do Sunday night at the London Palladium in '63, right. and then how excited they were when they played Washington D.C. And that doesn't yeah. even, you know, hold a candle to what's going on at Shea. Well, the thing about the Beatles, and again, Jude, you know this as well as I do, with being an author and researching everything, the Beatles got bored with things very quickly. Okay, yeah. that's why I think their music, their their look, everything changed about them so fast. And yeah. um, you know, once they did something, they'd done it, and right. they weren't interested in really doing it again. They wanted to do something different. So yeah, Shea was huge, the first big stadium show, and I'm sure they enjoyed the rest that they had during that tour. But you know, again, in '66, it was old hat. They were ready yeah. to move on. So sure. you, you look at their look at their faces, and even when they're playing in that concert in the beginning to me when they're doing twist and shout and in the beginning they're a little bit uptight you know they're a little bit like yeah. oh my god what did i get myself into 
But by the end of the show, you know, John Lennon, of course, is out of his mind, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that, that was just something that was, that was really big. Okay, where am I on my, Dave, my David Lennon yeah. top ten list here? Number two, number two. It, this concert, Shea Stadium, made them change the technology for how to do this. Okay, everything had to change after this because again, like, like Ken Mansfield said, it proved that rock and roll can be done in stadiums, but they didn't have the equipment to do it. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, the the they had no stage monitors. The Beatles could not hear themselves sing. You know, they had these big. They finally got these big hundred watt amplifiers behind them, which were huge mm-hmm. for that time, but they weren't big enough. You know. Yeah. And. Um, Everything had to change to make this work. So that's, that's where right. the real technology came in. So yeah. you know, it all developed based on Shea Stadium. They hadn't had that before. Had and, to step um, it up. The game had to be stepped up. Yeah. Yeah. If you wanted to be cutting edge, you want to be at the head of this uh, big new musical development thing, you came up with the equipment that would work. Yeah. That's and, right. Uh, okay. Now we've got to do, we got to do some kind of a drum roll for number one. Can you do a drum number roll? Number one. Uh, yeah. Okay, number one, it was New York City. That's it. Yeah. It was New York City, and just like it is today, to me, maybe I'm prejudiced because I lived there for so many years. Uh, it's the media capital of the world. Whatever happens in New York City, if it's newsworthy, the world knows about it. Okay. Yeah. This 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 couldn't have happened in Cleveland or Atlanta or St. Louis or Minneapolis. Any other? It was New York. And this was the right. first one. And this was the brand new state of the art Shea Stadium. It was only a year old at that time. Yeah. And here they were, these these rock gods, movie stars, the Beatles, and you put them in the middle of that in New York. And believe me, that was that's the big deal. That's what really made it. And it was Ed yeah. Sullivan introduced them. Ed Sullivan was a national personality. He was known around the world too. They were all there. Yeah. Pieces came together. So that's the number one reason. Greatest concert I love they did. It. That is phenomenal, and I want to tell everyone listening that all of that comes out in the book. You get all of the um, instruments and the amplifiers and the technique and the technology that they had. You get all of the people who were there, the people that you interviewed that actually experienced it. You get the songs and analysis of all the songs, which we'll talk about in just a second, and you really get every aspect of the Shea Stadium concert. Now, we have, believe it or not, only nine minutes left in the show. And I, I want, before we have one more caller who's waiting to ask you a question, but before we go to this caller, I know you're going to be in Chicago at the Fest for Beatles fans, August 14th, yeah. 15th, and 16th. Tell everybody where they can see you and buy these two great books, The Beatles in Cleveland and The Beatles at Shea Stadium. Well, you know, I'll be there wherever the marketplace is going to be, probably with you, okay, and Kit will be yep. there, everybody else. You know, we're going to have our, you know, the authors hanging out. And, um, right. yeah, I'll be there. I'm going to have both books, signing books. Uh, we put together some T-shirts for this year's uh, the 50th anniversary of Shea Stadium. They're very cool. And uh, wow. I'm going to have some of those with me. And, um, of course, August 15th is the 50th anniversary of that concert. So, hopefully... Uh, I've sent the word out to the guys who are supposed to be doing the scheduling. I'll be doing my Beatles at Shea Stadium program on Saturday, uh, August 15th. And I'm going to oh, show would, some of these. You know, I'll show the, some of the films of the uh, concert, but what a lot of people don't know is that the television special was overdubbed. You know, they had a secret recording session in January 1966 because the Beatles were not happy with the sound. Uh, but uh-huh. I have the original audio. So I've had <gasps> that put up 
against the, the video. So, and uh, I, I play like you know, some of the remastered stuff, which is not out yet. Um, I kind of play what it really sounds like, and I play, you know, kind of blends into what the remastered version sounds like, then back to the original audio. And uh, yeah, we have a lot of fun with it. It's a fun program. That is going to be. I love that, I, and I'll have to sneak away if I can from the booth and hear that because that is fantastic. And where can people between now and then, if they want to read the book and then bring it with them and have you sign it in Chicago, where can they get your book? You know, it's all over. It's it's on Amazon.com. It's in uh, Barnes and Noble, and um, you know any good bookstore can get it. Um, it's also Kindle and Nook, i iBooks, iTunes. It's it's a lot of places I don't even know actually, <laughs> but yeah. Okay. And uh, but yeah, Amazon. Everybody can go on that. Uh, if they want a signed copy, you know, they go to the website. And I've told people at Beetlefest, I'll sign it. Paul McCartney, I don't care. But uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they they can go to uh, each book has its own website. So you have Beetlestadium.com, and then we have Beetlesincleveland.com, and they can order directly through there. And we'd uh, I'll sign a book and send it to them. That is wonderful. And you also have one more website, which I thought was very interesting. Um, you have a combination of humor and classic rock. It's called Dave's Dream Songs Countdown. Okay. And that's at <laughs> www.theclassicrocker.com. And on Twitter, yeah. you are Classic Rocker 66. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. I put 66 because that's when I saw the Beatles. So Classic Rocker okay. 66. Classic Rocker 66. Well, we only have six minutes, but this caller has been so nice to wait. Shall I bring he or she on the line? Let's go let's, for it. Let's do it. Hey, caller in the 781 area code. Yes, hi, Jude. It's Ed. How are you doing? Hey, Ed. How are you? It's Thank you Very so good, much. I'm you. sorry we we made you wait. You've been on the a hold for almost nine minutes, but I know That's you have okay. a great question for Dave. That's okay. First of all, I'd like to say that uh, that was a great little um, tribute that you um, made for uh, Dennis Ferrante. Oh, thank uh, you. At the thank show. You. But that was very nice. Thank you. Uh, My I did buddy. have a question about, um, about the equipment that was being used uh, at that time, but I think Dave covered that question. But I have something else that I don't think is, I don't, is covered in this book. I can't remember. Uh, what, the kind of ritual that the Beatles had before a concert, did they have any kind of ritual? Like um, what kind of you know, drinks they wanted or f- food that they wanted at that time, or was that too early in the... No, no I didn't. I don't even talk. No, it's like Van Halen only having no black M&Ms in their dishes or something, and that kind of... No, the Beatles were, from everyone I talked with, the, the bookers, the ones who were with them, they were very easygoing. They were nice guys. No star treatment at all. They didn't expect it. Wow. It was almost like they, were, it was almost like they didn't understand what was a big deal. I was also told this sense of humor. Which they could have been a comedy team. But no, no rituals backstage. At Shea Stadium, what I found was particularly interesting, because you watch the, state, the Shea Stadium film, the special. They show them backstage, you know, getting ready and all this stuff. And everyone who was there said the Beatles were very aware of when the cameras were on them. So they were doing their bits, like, from A Hard Day Tonight or Help, you know, their little characters where they had. But when the cameras were not on them, they were chain-smoking and just nervous as can be. And, um, wow. of course, before they went on stage, there was the, I think there was quite often this backstage. John and Paul argued about what they were going to wear. John Lennon did not want to wear the shade jacket. It was too military for him. And yeah. he didn't like it. And Paul pretty much yelled him into it or talked him into it. Mm-hmm. And as a protest, John did not button up his jacket. You notice that. 
whereas the yeah. other three did. But yeah, it was called. It was originally called the military tunic, but now it's known as the shade jacket. But yeah, John yeah. didn't want to wear that. They were supposed to wear black suits. <clears throat> Very interesting. That is interesting. So no uh, herbs, or I, I remember when the Backstreet Boys had a concert at, on uh, the Donald Trump show, and they wanted wheat germ and all this other stuff backstage. The Beatles weren't particular about that, like the BSB. No, when you said herbs, I thought, were they smoking something? But I looked into that too, <laughs> <laughs> and they did not. Because you hear of all the Good. groups that you hear of all the groups that ask for uh, you no know, specific things um, to be there, or they. Pretty much nothing, they don't have there, to there was nothing like that. They were very cooperative. They were really nice guys. Nobody ever said a bad word about them before either great? the Shea Stadium concert or the Cleveland concert. It was nothing but praise. I was waiting for some dirt, you know, and it yep. wasn't it. They were nice guys, very easy going, very relaxed. John Lennon was the uh, man in charge. He called the shots, except for it came to wearing the military tunic. Paul won that one. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah. But they, and they just visited with friends backstage. Mick and Keith, uh, Nedra from the Ronettes was back there with them. I got her story. Um, yeah, they were just hanging out, visiting with friends, waiting to go on. Wow. Nervous that is great. And while Ed's still on the line, um, tell us some of the people that you talked to who contributed to this book. Oh, my gosh. Well, there, I mean, there were so many, and everybody had their own story. I mentioned Peter Bennett before. I mean, what a great thing was to talk with him because he was such yeah. a big part of him. He was a big promoter. Uh, right. Cousin Brucey. Cousin Brucey. Yeah. I mean, I'm still listening to Cousin Brucey on the serious radio here. <laughs> but sure. he is such a big part of the Beatles in America. He was with them when I got the plane in 19, February 1964. And he was, yeah. he, was the, he was the MC at the Shea Stadium concert. And the one thing I want to say, the story, the story that Cousin Brucey tells when he's walking up the steps with Ed Sullivan, to introduce Ed Sullivan, and Ed Sullivan is going to introduce the Beatles. The story he tells to me is just hilarious. I get chills when I still read that one, so I'm going to agree yeah. with that. Um, geez, I, you know, I mentioned Ron Schneider. Uh, I'm looking at stage. Sean Weiss and Judith Kristen oh, is yeah. in here, and uh, Scott Ross, Russ Lease, who is a good friend of ours from the Fest. Uh, I mean, yes. you, Steve Marinucci, you really did your homework on this. I really went into it, and it was a joy just talking to everyone. And I just, they all had such fascinating stories and just things about being there. And I also want to mention Nedra from the Ronettes, because I'm a huge Ronettes fan. But she's the one that emphasized the point how young they all were. When you think yeah. back, and really look at the Beatles now, they've been around for 50 years, whatever. They were college-age kids, pretty much, right. when they did this. Right. You know? Right. Barely out of their teens, not even, you know, getting towards their mid-20s. And here they were doing this yeah. stuff. I, that's the one thing I couldn't get over, how young everybody was when this yeah. was going on. Yeah, the excitement of the book is palpable. And I did not, I wanted to read to everyone a passage on page 118 through 120 of Twist and Shout. And I did not get to do that. But I'm telling you, the writing is superb. You feel as if you're there. I highly recommend both the Beatles at Shea Stadium and the Beatles in Cleveland. Come by and meet Dave at the Chicago Fest for Beatles fans. Buy your book ahead of time, read it, get him to sign it for you, or buy one there, and you will enjoy these books immensely. Ed, thank you for calling in tonight, and Dave, a zillion thanks to you for being on the show. I enjoyed it so much. Jude, thank you so much. You know, I'm a big fan of your books, too. I don't know how you can write that dialogue and be so consistent with it. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Uh, It's just so good. 
And uh, thank you. Very thank you for allowing well, me on your show. Been, have a good time. It's been great fun. We have to do – there's so much we didn't get to cover, so we'll have to get back and do part two. Thank you, guys. We'll do it and again. And to rock and shine have a good night. on. Good night.